Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Luke's Gospel. We'll look at uh, chapter 1, verses 39 through 56 this morning. And if you need a Bible, there are some on the back table there. Um, So, I quote Joe Pope a lot because he's got a lot of these great sayings. Um, One of them is, uh, he says, I may not be much, but I'm all I think about. Um, I like that one. It's getting to the point that uh, we have a serious problem with self-centeredness. Maybe that's a surprise to you. Hopefully not. Uh, We we do have a serious problem with self-centeredness. We're full of ourselves. We think of ourselves always. We act for ourselves, for our own benefits. We promote ourselves to others, or we hide ourselves from others, whichever one is better for ourselves. Um, And kids, just so you know, um, everyone does this. It's not just you, right? Everyone is self-centered. It's not just you. We know that you are self-centered because we are self-centered, because the Bible says that everyone is selfish. But as uh, we sang earlier, you know, um, being, a, being a Christian and looking to God, uh, we're, we're singing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Um, the Son of God has come into the world. He's been born as a human, Jesus. He's the true king. He's the real center of the universe. And our thoughts and our hearts, instead of being full of ourselves, they should be full of him. Um, not, and, and that's where we will find true joy. And that's what we're talking about this morning uh, as we look at Mary's song of joy. So let me pray and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us without a testimony about who you are, but you have revealed yourself perfectly as you sent your son Jesus into the world for our salvation. And it's uh, through him and through him alone that we can truly come to know you. And it's uh, in the word about him, the gospel of grace, that we truly come to know him. And so we pray that as we open the scripture this morning, that uh, you would open our hearts and our minds by the power of your spirit to be able to receive Christ, to be able to understand Christ, and therefore to be able to uh, understand and know and trust and love you, our Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So uh, the, the passage that we're looking at this morning takes place as, uh, as Mary responded to the angel's word to her in the previous passage we looked at last week. Uh, you'll remember that uh, the, the angel, um, Gabriel, tipped her off to the fact that her relative Elizabeth, who was, uh, the scripture says earlier in Luke, uh, advanced in years and barren, right? And that she had become pregnant. She was now in the sixth month of her pregnancy. And uh, as the angel Gabriel came and told Mary, you also are going to become pregnant uh, miraculously through the power of the Holy Spirit, through God's creative work in you to, uh, to conceive uh, the, the God-man in your womb. Um, as, the, as the angel told her that, then um, it, it obviously, it seems like it was the first time that she had heard of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So basically says immediately, you know, with haste, she went to uh, where Elizabeth was. Um, and uh, and greeted her in her home, and that, that probably was like eighty to a hundred miles away from where Mary was, you know, from from Nazareth, where Mary was, to a, the hill country of Judah. Uh, so it's a bit of a walk for somebody who's so young and who may be um, experiencing uh, things like morning sickness because of her new pregnancy. But uh, when she arrives there, she uh, she verbally greets Elizabeth, and Elizabeth hears it. And the baby in her womb, who's John the Baptist, six months old, I think that's probably legitimate that a six-month-old would be kicking and jumping and you would feel it. But um, uh, John the Baptist leaps for joy, right? And she interprets that as a a leaping for joy. So Elizabeth is filled with a spirit, which, um, kind of a side note, when Luke talks about people being filled with the spirit, he says it three times in his gospel, and then he says it six times in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote. Uh, whenever it says that the person or people were filled with the Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, then the, uh, the immediate result is that they proclaim uh, with boldness God's Word. They bring glory to Jesus Christ, to the gospel, through their proclamation. And so not only was it John's first prophecy, uh, his, his leaping in the womb for joy, but it was also Elizabeth's prophecy um, as she uh, points to God's grace. She uh, humbles herself and uh, acknowledges the fact, and, and she... Um, Beyond her knowing, she didn't know that Mary was pregnant beforehand, but the, the Spirit gave her insight into understanding that Mary was in fact pregnant and it was not a normal pregnancy and that her Lord, the God-man, uh, would uh, be the one born of Mary. So um, there's a lot to think about in that first paragraph there, but we're actually going to focus more uh, almost just entirely on uh, what happens in verses 46 through, uh, through the end of our passage, which is uh, commonly referred to as the Magnificat, which is uh, the name of the song. Uh, it's one of the songs that we see early in Luke's gospel. It's the name of the song. Uh, it, it comes from the Latin translation of the first word of Mary's song, which she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's a song of glory to God, her Savior. It's a hymn of praise. It's a hymn of thanksgiving. It follows after the pattern of the kind of Old Testament Hebrew hymns and psalms. Uh, it's kind of the, the last of the Old Testament psalms and the first of the Christian 
hymns uh, that Mary sings, it's patterned after not just uh, psalms, but a lot of Old Testament texts. It quotes or alludes to, uh, I think, just like a minimum of 12 passages from the Old Testament. And uh, verses, you know, from Genesis, Deuteronomy, First uh, and Second Samuel. First Samuel is what uh, Jerry read earlier. It's Hannah's uh, response to her uh, becoming miraculously pregnant with uh, Samuel. And um, also quotes or alludes to uh, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. So basically, Mary is um, somewhat of a theologian. She's obviously familiar with the scriptures. And, uh, and Phil Riken says he's got a, um, well, he says this uh, about, uh, about this passage. He says, Mary tried to put virtually the whole Bible into her song. Mary tried to put virtually the whole Bible into her song. So there's a sense in which this song, the Magnificat, is a summary of all the scriptures. Right? And Mary's talking about what God has done for her. And she's talking about what God is going to do for her. And, um, and not only that, but what God's doing for the whole world through her baby. Um, and, and that baby, that child, Jesus, is what the whole Bible's about. So this is kind of a summary song of joy and glory to God for his work uh, throughout the scriptures um, and pointing to Jesus, which all the scriptures are pointing to. Last week, <clears throat> we saw that it was essential to think about the person of Jesus Christ, who he is. The fact that uh, he was born of a virgin, he has no earthly father, means that God is his father, that he is fully God and fully man, and you can't get around that. You've got to, um, you've got to think about that. You've got to acknowledge that and, uh, and wrestle with that and respond to uh, his person. It's because Jesus is both God and man. He's the son of God, and then again last week as uh, we look at briefly, he's the son of David. He's the one who would be promised as a human to come and rule over uh, God's people forever. Uh, because he's both the son of God and the son of David, he's, he's the one true king of heaven and earth. Uh, not just the earth, heaven and earth. Uh, he's the one true king of all things, and his kingship has serious ramifications for everyone who has ever lived. So he, um, I think we kind of get into trouble with this uh, in, in uh, evangelical churches, at least in America, where we kind of reduce uh, the relevance of Jesus to he's our, your own personal savior, right? Um, he's, uh, it's just kind of a spiritualized almost minimized work that he has done in order to um, kind of erase the obstacles between you and God to have a relationship with God. Uh, and he does that, and he has come for that purpose, and he has accomplished all of those purposes, but, uh, but that's a pretty uh, narrow, kind of individualistic way to look at who he is as the king. He's, he's more than just the savior of souls, if you could t- more than just the savior of souls. Um, <clears throat> he's the king of the world. And, and his work as king of all things uh, is to turn everything upside down, right? or probably more appropriately, to turn everything right side up, um, which uh, this was the work that he began at his first advent when he became a man, when he came into the world, and it's the work that will be consummated at his second advent, his second coming, when he returns with glory to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new and to bring the new heaven and new earth uh, uh, together for eternity, um, but there's there's uh, 
in Luke 19, Jesus um, says this, which could serve as kind of one of those summary texts of the Gospels. He says that the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, um, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Um, He didn't come to reward those who think they have everything figured out, right? Uh, He did not come to just reward people who in and of themselves have uh, a sense of worth, a sense of value, um, something that they can commend themselves to God. He didn't come to reward people like that. He came to save those. He came to seek and save, to pursue and deliver those who know that they don't have everything figured out who know that they're lost, and if you don't know you're lost, he came to expose your lostness. Um, And that means something for all of us, everybody who ever lived, everybody in the whole world, that means something. It means that, uh, to quote somewhat of an old adage now, he, uh, he came to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Uh, Martin Emmerich, who is a pastor, um, of Westminster Presbyterian in Corvallis. Uh, He has a little book called At the Heart of Luke, and um, he says this about the Magnificat, Mary's song here. The Magnificat speaks of salvation as reversals of fortunes. Those who exalt themselves are being humbled, whereas the humble are exalted. And the rich are dispossessed while the poor are filled with good things. So this, this passage, this kind of summary of all the Bible, this song of praise and joy uh, to God our King, is full of strong warnings for those who are exalted. It's full of strong warnings for those who are rich. And at the same time, it's strong comfort for the humble and for the poor. Jesus is God. He's the true King. We're not despite the fact that we live that way all the time, um, despite the fact that we're not much, but we're all we think about, uh, Jesus is the true king, and we're not. We've rebelled against God. We've rebelled against the one who is truth, who is reality. We've rebelled against the one who is right in all of his ways, preferring our distorted version of reality, our self-centeredness, our self-rule, our autonomy from God. We're the ones who originally reversed everything. We turned everything upside down with our sin. We need to be liberated then from ourselves and from the broken world that we've created. We need to be restored to a new creation. We need to be renewed in God's image. And that means flipping us on our heads and turning everything else back right side up. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Can you not see that everything that man boasts in, his intellect, his understanding, his power, his social status, his influence, his righteousness, his morality, his ethics, his code, every one of them is utterly demolished by this Son of God. And it's not that there's anything intrinsically wrong with these things, right? Riches, intellect, power, morality, there's not anything intrinsically wrong with those, but Jesus tells us that we are dead if we trust in those things to bring us life or to to reconcile us to God or to bring us glory. Jesus says we're dead if we trust those things. 
And Martin Luther says, um, he kind of exposes the problem with us, that there's no greater pain than the gnawing pangs of conscience, right? There's something broken about us. It is totally wrong with us and with the world, and we know it needs to be fixed. And our response is to try to fix it, right? And um, Cliff Williams has a book called Singleness of Heart, and he says that self-justification, which is basically our attempt to fix what's wrong with us in, in our own eyes and in God's sight and in other people's sight, Self-justification convinces us that the accusations of our conscience are mistaken. It soothes the sharp pain of being fully conscious of our real natures. It clothes our naked selves. We know there's something broken. We know there's something wrong. We know there's something dead. We're going to cover it up. We're going to bury it. We're going to put a good face on it. We're going to justify ourselves by clinging to things like our riches like our honor, like our good works. Worst of all, uh, worst of all the merits that we trust in spiritual pride, right? Religious attempts at self-justification. Through Jesus, God scatters the spiritually proud, the spiritually justified in the thoughts of their hearts. That's what's going on inside of our hearts is this self-justification, especially religious people like us, right? But God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. So we have these expectations that greatness deserves reward. Isn't that how it works? I deserve reward for my merits, whatever they are. We see this throughout Luke's gospel, that this is just turned upside down by Jesus, by the Savior, by the King, You see the prayers of the self-righteous Pharisee in contrast with the prayers of the sinful tax collector. Which prayers are received? You see the legalistic son is lost while the prodigal son is found. You see the rich man suffers the outcome of his uh, self-centeredness, of his life's trajectory as he suffers in hell, but the poor man, Lazarus, is received into heaven. And then at the end of the gospel, toward the end, the one who is righteousness and life, he dies a criminal's death, and that same one, the crucified one, rises to everlasting life, and he's given all glory and dominion and authority. And now in his mercy alone, in his mercy alone, he has exalted those of humble estate, text says. Those who have given up their attempts at self-justification, they've given up whatever it is that they cling to, whatever it is that they trust in about themselves, they've given up spiritual pride, every other proud effort to fix what's broken, to fix the gnawing pangs of conscience, right? Because you can never fix the gnawing pangs of conscience. Your conscience is telling you that you deserve God's justice, but Jesus bore that penalty for you. So that you could receive his grace, but only if you give up your proud rebellion and you humble yourself and you depend on him instead of yourself and you throw yourself on his mercy instead of trusting in your own merits and you submit yourself to his rule. You have to quit trusting in your own merits. You have to quit trying to get love and glory based on something inside of you, based on who you are, what you've done. And Jesus is always talking, on the other hand, about the poor. 
right? Whether they're materially poor or spiritually poor and how they're so close to the kingdom because there's this honesty, right? There's this honesty about their lack of merits. They just have nothing else to trust in, nothing else to rely on, nothing else to boast about except for Jesus, except for the Savior, except for the King. And you need to get to that place. If you're not there already, you need to get to that place. And sometimes that involves God tearing you away from the things that you're building your life on. And that's never comfortable. Tearing you away from the things that you're, you're building your life on so that you have nothing left but Jesus to build your life on. Jesus' merit, his righteousness, his perfection, his purity, his moral beauty, his status in God's sight is fully and freely given to you by his grace. It's yours. God knows who you are. He knows everything about you better than you ever could. And he doesn't hold it against you. Because Jesus carried all that stuff with him to the cross. That's what kind of king he is. And uh, as we saw last week, and we see throughout the gospel, he reveals to us perfectly what kind of God we have. That's what kind of God we have. That's what kind of king Jesus is. He's the kind of king who loves with a terrifying love. He's the kind of king who spends uh, his precious time, his valuable time, with society's outcasts. And he's the kind of king who leads us into relationships with and says that we need to make a priority of the poor and the widow and the orphan and the prisoner and the refugee. The effects of Jesus' kingship in our lives We should be on a trajectory, as he was, of, um, it's like a downward mobility, right? A trajectory of humility and uh, poverty emptying ourselves so that we would be full of him, right? Knowing who Jesus is and what he came to do, we need to choose then downward mobility. God chose it, and if you're going to follow him, you choose it. We need to choose to pick up your cross. The Son of God chose it. And he said, if you're going to follow him, you need to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow him. You need to choose to give your life for your friends. The Son of God chose that. You need to choose even to love your enemies because he chose that. And while we were his enemies, he died for us. You need to give up self-reliance. You need to give up on reliance even on human wisdom and power, uh, on a, on a global scale. Give it up altogether, right? Politics can't fix the world. Politics can't fix people. It can't fix the way that we've broken things. Science can't fix it. Art can't fix it. Charity can't fix it. Religious activity can't fix it. Only Jesus Christ, the true king, can fix the world. And you know that now So you bend the knee to him alone as king, and one day every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father in acknowledgement that he is the king, there is no other way, and his way is right. It's better to sing with Mary now, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, 
better to sing with her now and magnify the Lord for his grace to you and for his work in your life to turn everything upside down. I mean, don't you want the joy that the Holy Spirit has obviously given to this unborn child, John, and to his elderly mother, Elizabeth, and especially to Mary, the joy that made her sing? Don't you want that joy? My, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It may be a difficult life that you have to follow a king um, who strides against the current of the whole world when the world's solution to all of its problems is just kind of amplifying self-esteem, increased uh, further self-centeredness. Right? That's the way of the world, and our king strides straight against it as he's turning everything upside down, and that makes it difficult for us But it's a delightful life. It's a vibrant life to know God through him, through this king, through this savior, and to make much of him rather than making much of ourselves all the time. That's what we were made for. And the joy, this kind of joy comes with the freedom of letting go your own strength. Letting go your own wisdom. Not trusting in your own merits but throwing yourself at Jesus' feet for his mercy. And the joy comes with the assurance that God has mercy for you if you trust in Christ. His mercy is for those who fear him, the text says. So put your trust in him and rejoice. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this, uh, this king seems strange to us. He... He thwarts us in our sinful natures. He runs straight across all of our agendas and expectations. This king in his birth and life and death and resurrection is a scandal to this whole world. And yet we know from your word and from your spirit that this king is good for us and that his way is the only way. And that what he has begun in his first coming and what he will complete in his second coming is our only hope. It's our only hope for true joy and for everlasting love. And even for glory, because he has shared your glory with us through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We, we praise you for shattering our expectations through sending this king into the world. And we pray that you would overcome any of our uh, resistances, any obstacles that still dwell in our hearts to him taking up residence in our hearts and truly being our king and leading us wherever uh, you would have us go. We pray that you would help us to submit to you and help us to see as Jesus is the king of our lives and as his kingdom is coming into this world uh, through even through the church, even through those who follow him, his kingdom is entering this world right now. We pray that we would see joy, that you would give us a taste of everlasting joy as as uh, his kingdom has come and as it starts to push back against the darkness of this world, the darkness that is here because of us. Forgive us our sins, create in us a clean heart, and help us to follow Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.